Hello, listeners. My name's Luke Curdenine. I'm Golf Digest's play editor, and I've got an exciting update for you. Golf Digest is launching a new podcast hosted by me called Golf IQ. We discuss all things game improvement on the Golf IQ pod, and if you're a golf nerd, you're going to love it. Our goal is simple, to make nerdy nuggets of information easy to understand to help us all become smarter, better golfers. So search Golf IQ and subscribe wherever you get your pods. We're looking forward to seeing you. As of today, March 2023, we have had in this country 45 different American presidents, over 46 presidencies, and of those 45 men, four of them have been assassinated by gunshot while they were in office. Before assassins were almost unbelievably strange. You know you have to be a pretty odd duck to consider killing a president, much less to do it. But even by that standard, these stories and these men are bizarre. First one, John Wilkes Booth, is probably the most understandable from an ideology perspective. He was a diehard Southerner. He hated Abraham Lincoln. But he also had the most to lose. This man was literally one of the most famous actors in America. He was a rich man. He gave it all up to kill Lincoln and to meet his end, surrounded in a Virginia barn where he was burned out and shot to death. 16 years later, Charles Guiteau assassinated James Garfield. And when you talk about weird historical figures, this guy is near the top. Why did he kill him? Well, because he thought he, Charles Guiteau, was directly responsible for getting Garfield elected, based on a speech he wrote and gave one time that maybe a few people in some city square heard. And for his service, he wanted to become ambassador to France. He was rejected, of course, so he decided to kill the president. For that, he was hanged. Move ahead to August 1901, Leon Sholgo shot and killed William McKinley at a greeting line at the Temple of Music in Buffalo, New York. Sholgo was an anarchist, but so strange and off-putting that even people on his own side didn't really like or trust him. In fact, they thought he was a cop. He refused to defend himself at his trial, said he did it for the working people, and he wasn't sorry. He was electrocuted. And finally, of course, Lee Harvey Oswald killed JFK. And despite the fact that this is by far the most modern of the killings, we know the least about Oswald's motives because he himself was killed two days later by Jack Ruby. Enter a million conspiracy theories. Two other presidents have been shot. Teddy Roosevelt was shot by a man named John Fleming Schrank, who said that the ghost of William McKinley had visited him in a dream, ordered him to avenge his death by shooting Roosevelt. Go figure. And finally, the most recent of all, Ronald Reagan was shot by John Hinckley Jr., a man who was pathologically obsessed with the actress Jodie Foster and thought that assassinating the president might impress her. Reagan survived, barely, and so did Hinckley. He was released after 35 years in 2016, and today, at age 67, he posts his original music to YouTube. So, why are you hearing about all this on Golf Digest? Because... Today, we're going to talk about a man named Charlie Harris. They called him Smiley. It was one of those ironic nicknames because Charlie Harris never actually smiled. And in 1983, two years after Reagan was shot by Hinckley, Harris, resident of Augusta, Georgia, found out that the president was playing golf 
at Augusta National, and what happened next was documented by the great Dave Kindred here in the pages of Golf Digest in 2000. Kindred wrote, At 2.15 p.m. on October 22, 1983, Charlie Harris crashed his truck through a locked gate at Augusta National Golf Club, rumbled to the golf shop, used his 38 caliber revolver to disarm Secret Service agents, took seven people hostage, and demanded to talk to President Ronald Reagan. This was not an assassination attempt, if you believe Harris. And one really wild thing is that this story is going to focus largely on the hostage situation, which didn't involve Ronald Reagan, but according to Harris, he saw Reagan near the clubhouse when he drove in. For his own reasons, he didn't go after him then, but again, this is according to him. If he had wanted to make an attempt on Reagan's life, boom, there it was, he had his shot. But regardless, this is a story of someone getting very close to a U.S. president with a loaded firearm. And what Harris shares in common with the assassins laid out above is a certain strange character. There's that word again, strange. Strange ideas, a strange audacity, and even a desperation that let him do something that is completely outside the ordinary run of human behavior. And while you might think that this is an act of such magnitude that Everybody must know about it. It must be a famous golf story. In fact, it's barely known today. Sam Weinman, my editor, was the one who pointed out Kindred's story to me, said this might make a good podcast. I'd never heard of it. And I've written, I think, a good deal about Augusta. I should have known this. So, who is Charlie Harris? What did he want from Ronald Reagan? And how on earth was security so tight and so numerous that, as one local deputy put it, quote, an ant can't crawl in there. At the sanctuary that is Augusta National, our nation's most famous golf course, most exclusive golf course, how did this guy, of all people, get so close to the President of the United States of America? This is Local Knowledge. I'm Shane Ryan. And as you glean from the introduction, I am indebted to Dave Kindred's Excellent reporting for this podcast, along with a story I discovered a little bit later by Adam Shupak, which is funny because the last podcast we did about Dean Beeman relied on Shupak's book. We didn't plan to mine his material twice in a row like this, but here we are. I also looked at contemporary accounts from the New York Times, Washington Post, Augusta Chronicle, UPI. Those were all very helpful to fill in some blanks, add some details, but... Kindred and Shupak really provided the bedrock and most of the color here. So, who was Charlie Harris? Well, he was a real good old boy, according to an acquaintance who was quoted in the Times shortly after this whole incident went down. Harris was Georgia born and raised, son of a father who was a Navy man and then a police detective in Augusta. Harris himself, until a couple of months before he crashed the gates, was a millwright at a paper mill called continental forest industries he held that job for more than 20 years he was the union shop steward and accounts from those who knew him and who worked with him describe him in interesting ways first of all he was apparently not a loner by any means popular to some degree with his co-workers a man named john o'brien described himself as his best friend at the paper mill and in o'brien's words harris was a quote very stern person who believes in right and wrong there's no in between supervisor was Michael Colbreth, who called him strong-willed and, quote, somewhat rough and gruff in negotiations, but someone who cared deeply about union issues. And even Colbreth, who seems to have probably been on the opposite side of him in these negotiations, if I'm reading it right, he said he respected him. Might surprise you to know that Harris was a Reagan supporter. 
fact, he was so happy when Reagan won the election in 1980 that he called up O'Brien, his friend, just to brag about it a little bit. Other than that, though, he wasn't a hugely political guy. This wasn't someone who was ranting about Reagan eventually or, or anybody else or anything like that. It wasn't a big part of his life. One thing you do get the sense of is that Harris was a brawler. I haven't looked up his criminal record, but from Kindred's story, you get the clear indication that this guy would get in bar fights. He would get in trouble with the law. When Kindred asked him about his first bar fight, he said, quote, I can tell you the worst. It was the night Johnny and I leveled Tomcats. As we were leaving, sirens were arriving. So was a strong man. Played semi-pro football until he was 38. Had a number of serious injuries, a ruptured spleen, tore up his knees, broke his nose six times, that kind of thing. O'Brien, his friend from work, and by the way, I don't know if that's the same John that leveled Tomcats with him. It might be. But after everything that happened at Augusta, O'Brien said he doubted that Harris would shoot anybody. He said, quote, he's the kind of guy who believes in muscle. He wouldn't shoot anybody. He'd beat them. There's a story Kindred tells that Harris was driving one day. This was before the Augusta incident. He was in his 74 Dodge pickup. She called Old Blue. And he got into a kind of standoff at some point with someone on the road. And the person in front just stopped dead in front of him, gave him the finger, and wouldn't move. So what did Harris do? Well, he hit the gas, ran into the car, plowed it into a nearby ditch. And his explanation for that one was that he was being helpful. Because it seemed like he couldn't get her cranked up. Harris also had a significant drinking problem. Bad enough that before all this he'd been hospitalized for alcohol abuse. And at this point in his life, and Harris was 45 in 1983, things started to go wrong. Really wrong. Some of it was bad luck. Some of it was self-inflicted. First one, the details are a little bit sketchy. He was either divorced or estranged from his wife. Seemed to have happened about two years earlier. The wife moved, may have remarried, or at least was with someone new, and, and she took the son and three daughters that they had together with her. Then Harris's father, who seems to have been the man he was closest to in the world, got sick, had a long illness, and passed away in May of 1983. So, you get the picture here of a guy who is on one hand a fighter, a big drinker, blue-collar kind of man's man, but on the other, he has this pretty stringent code of morals, kind of black-and-white thinker, but someone who is not afraid to fight aggressively, if necessary, for something he believes in. And his life, which was already seemingly pretty tough gets much tougher right around this time. Divorce, in particular the death of his father, no surprise that it triggered a kind of dark period for him, a depression. The drinking got worse, got so bad that it cost him his job. According to the Times, Colbert, his supervisor, would only say that it was work rule violations, but O'Brien, in an interview, made it clear to the reporter that he was accused of coming to work drunk, and that led to his dismissal. This was in the summer. You can only imagine how a bad situation gets worse when he no longer has the job that he's held for two decades. Gives him that much less stability, that much less purpose. And the U.S. at this time was just coming off a recession, a couple of them really. 70s had not been very kind to blue-collar workers. The early 80s weren't much better. So a story like Harris's is not that unusual in the broader details. These are relatively tough economic times. It certainly doesn't explain what happens next, but... Maybe it helps to look at this thing, I don't know, statistically. If there are millions of men like Harris in the U.S. at the time, maybe a small handful are going to be in a position and a mindset to do something very extreme. 
as it turns out, at least one of them will. And these are the preconditions that make some really wild outcomes possible. So, the morning of October 22nd, 1983, Charlie Harris happens to be driving by Augusta National with his sister Harriet. And if that doesn't happen, by the way, probably nothing else in this story happens. But that morning, he can't help but notice the police presence is obviously high. You've got peace officers all along the fences. Something's going on. Remember, Harris's dad was a detective, so Charlie Harris knows a lot of these guys. He sees a county deputy he recognizes. He says, Mitch, who you got in there? And the answer is the president, Ronald Reagan. Unlike a lot of our presidents, Ronald Reagan was not much of a golfer at that point. It seems maybe he picked it up more later when he was out of office. But this was actually his first trip to Augusta National. The idea is that it would be a two-day trip. Even if you're the president, you have to be a guest at Augusta. So he was the guest of George Schultz, the Secretary of State and Augusta member. And in terms of the golf, they were going to play in a force in that first day. And the other two players were Donald T. Regan, the Secretary of the Treasury, and Nicholas Brady, a former senator from New Jersey, who would later also become Secretary of the Treasury under Reagan and Bush. Reagan was a bad golfer. He played a total of 12 rounds during his entire presidency. That was eight years in office. He's been ranked by some writers who care about this stuff as maybe the worst golfer in presidential history. And if you dared to ask him what his handicap was, his answer would be Congress. Some years, most years it seems like, he'd only play once, and that was on New Year's Day at his friend's place in California. So, golf was obviously not his favorite thing. He wasn't like Dwight Eisenhower, who spent an incredible amount of time at Augusta, or more modern presidents, Obama, of course, Trump, who loved golf. That wasn't him. But if you're invited to Augusta National, I guess you make the trip at least once. So there he was. After Harris figured out what was going on at Augusta, that Reagan was there, another accidental coincidence happened that became, again, an inciting event. Another one of these tumblers locking into place in a way that was going to change people's lives that day. And what happened was he went home, turned on his TV, and saw the news that U.S. Steel was planning to lay off thousands of workers. And you could see how this would be personal to Harris, right? Having lost his job... Not for the same reasons, but there is a thematic similarity there. This idea that his life is going to hell. He's somebody who supported Ronald Reagan. How's that going? Well, now thousands of jobs are going overseas. The world to him at that moment must have looked like one big landscape of injustice. Now, there's some debate about how much he drank that morning and that early afternoon. He would tell Kindred later that all he had was two drinks. And he emphasized that because he knew a lot of people were saying, this guy's hammered, this guy must have been really drunk to do what he did. He wants you to know he wasn't. But on the other side of the evidence scales, everybody he took hostage eventually talked about the smell of liquor on him. Later that night, when he was admitted to the hospital, they found he was right at the legal intoxication point. But what you have to remember is that that's hours after he gets to Augusta. Doesn't have any booze in Augusta, certainly doesn't have any in jail after, you'd think. And by the time he gets to the hospital, we're talking eight to ten hours of nothing. And at that point, he's still at the legal limit. Does that support the idea that he only had two drinks? I don't know. It is worth considering. Whatever the case, after hearing this news about U.S. Steel, he has the thought that if you're Ronald Reagan or the people close to him, you don't want him to have. You don't want him to get there in his brain. He thinks, why don't I just go see him? Guy's in town. Why don't I go see him? Why don't I go pick his brain? And that's what he does. He gets in his blue and silver 74 Dodge pickup, four-wheel drive, 
heads to Washington Road, and he's got a 38 caliber revolver with him. Bottle of tequila on the floorboards. He's wearing jeans that are held up by suspenders, an Atlanta Falcons practice jersey, and a baseball hat that says, Heaven is a lot like Dixie. Comes to Augusta National, Gate 3, which is east of Magnolia Lane. Rams the fence once, not quite good enough, backs up, rams it again, and this time it goes down. Hangs for a minute on the front end of his truck, the fence does, as he hits the gas. He drives up the single-lane road, soon finds himself in a parking lot by the clubhouse. That's where he runs into a chauffeur named Roy Sullivan, who is, at that moment, unpacking some clubs. Now, what's interesting here, as you heard me allude to earlier, years later... Harris claims that he saw Ronald Reagan at this point. The White House always maintained afterward that Reagan was on the 16th hole when it happened. And, you know, the 16th hole, we should mention, is nowhere near the parking lot. So if that was true, there's no chance that Harris saw him. And Harris is the only guy saying that, no, Reagan was actually by the clubhouse. I saw him. If I wanted, I could have gone up to him and shot him right then. It's part of his main argument that this was never an assassination attempt, which, again, I believe... I don't think it was even premeditated unless you count, you know, a few hours that afternoon. But I don't know what to think about this claim that he saw Reagan. It feels unlikely to me. Anyway, what we do know is that he sees Sullivan, the chauffeur, sticks a gun in his back, and he marches into the pro shop. When he gets there and goes inside, he puts Sullivan in a headlock. He takes a look around and he sees a few people. Two of the people happen to be Reagan's guys. One is Lanny Wiles, a Republican operative who worked on Reagan's campaign in 1980 and still helped him out when he traveled around the South. He was like the point man for this trip. He was organizing everything. And his payoff was going to be, for all his hard work, that he gets to play around at Augusta National. And the other man with him was David Fisher. This is Reagan's personal aide, his bag man, the guy who is pretty much constantly by his side. Now, it's interesting that these guys were here. They weren't supposed to be. Where were they supposed to be? They were supposed to be playing the course. They were scheduled to be in the group ahead of Reagan. But that morning when they were about to tee off, Robert McFarlane, who was their playing partner, the national security advisor, got a call he had to take. His aides even took him away. Speculation now is that it may have been about the invasion of Granada that was about to happen in three days. So at first they decide to wait for him, but this call is taking an awfully long time. Not a big surprise if there's war planning going on. So they let Reagan's group, who was supposed to be behind them, they let them go through. They let them play first. And at that point, with McFarland's call taking longer and longer, Wiles makes a fateful decision that instead of playing, he's going to walk with Reagan just to watch him play. Fisher decides to do the same thing with him. And we told you Reagan was a bad golfer. He is making an absolute mess of the course. By the time he gets to number 12, it's a complete disaster. 12 is the shortest hole in the course, but he starts by yanking one into Race Creek, hits his second one to the same place, then on his third try, somehow comes up short of the water. Wiles decided he has had plenty of this. He says to Fisher, quote, I can't watch this anymore. I'm going to go shopping. Fisher agrees, and where do they go? Well, they go to the pro shop. It's 2 p.m., and they are just a few minutes ahead of Charlie Harris. When Harris bursts into the door, Fisher thinks it's a robbery. Wiles is a little sharper in that moment, 
He knows that would be a really weird coincidence that a robber happens to come the day that Reagan's there. Thinks it's definitely not a robbery. He tells Fisher, get rid of your radio. Because he thinks the last thing they want is for this guy, this intruder, to know that they're Reagan's guys. Drops his own radio in a towel basket. And Harris brings him, Sullivan, and Fisher into the back room. And at this point, he's got three other hostages who are already in the pro shop. One is Jim Armstrong, the GM of Augusta. And there are two pro shop employees in there with him. Sullivan, the chauffeur he took hostage, he lets him go immediately, which is interesting. He tells them, I've got a bottle of tequila in my truck. Go drink it. This kind of makes sense. Sullivan is a worker like him. He's not going to keep him there. Maybe he even feels a little bad that he held him at gunpoint. So Sullivan's gone. Fisher, this is again Reagan's personal aide, finally breaks the silence and says to Harris, what do you want? And Harris says, I want to see that son of a bitch on the golf course. Not much doubt who he's talking about. No longer plausible that it's only a robbery. But Fisher says, I'm his aide. I can be an intermediary. Let me go. I'll go to Reagan. I'll talk to him. I'll try to work something out. And lucky for him, Harris buys this and he lets Fisher go. And you can't blame Fisher here. As I said, he's somebody who's always by Reagan's side. And that was also true in 1981 when Reagan was shot by John Hinckley. And remember, Hinckley didn't just hit Reagan. He hit a police officer. He hit a Secret Service agent. He permanently disabled James Brady, the White House press secretary. Brady, of course, was the namesake of the Brady Bill, which tried to restrict handgun and assault weapon access. That was a result in some part of him being shot that day, that whole bill. So Fisher, he didn't get hit then, but it had to have been close, and he saw it up close. So imagine being him, and it's happening again. This guy is only 35 years old. And there's a UPI story, the wire service, that comes out right after where Fisher is quoted as saying, in that moment, with Harris holding him hostage, he vows to the Lord that if he gets free, he's going to quit this job. I mean, that's it. How much of this can you take? In fact, he didn't quit afterward, but in the moment, you get it. And you also get him more or less looking out for himself here and saying, let me go and I'll help you. And true to his word, that's what he does. He goes right to Reagan and he does try to facilitate some contact. So back in the pro shop with the people left, Harris starts telling everyone his story, almost like he's warming up for when he might get to tell that story to Reagan. Wiles, you know, the, the point man, the guy who's organized this whole trip for Reagan, remembers that he got the sense that this is not a bad guy, Harris. He just had everything go wrong for him, and now he wants to talk to the president. Doesn't mean he's not dangerous, though. But it does seem like he's got a heart. He's already let one hostage go. Two of the pro shop employees he took hostage are clearly young. To quote Wiles, both of them looked nervous as a hooker in church. One of them, named Chris Hardy, is so scared that he's tapping his leg repeatedly. He can't really stop. And Hardy spoke to Kindred uh, for Golf Digest many years later. And he said that at this point, Harris was almost ranting, saying things like, they don't think I mean business. According to Hardy, it was clear he'd been drinking. But the toe tapping, the sort of leg tapping that he was doing, caught Harris's attention. And he looked at Hardy and he said, how old are you? And according to Hardy, somebody near him whispered that he should say he was 12 years old, which is a bit of dark humor in this mess. Hardy is actually 23, but he thinks 19 will sound a little better. So he says, I'm 19. And according to Kindred... Harris says, you're too young to be in here, get out. But, according to Shupak, 
and here he's quoting Wiles. What he actually says to Hardy and whoever this other pro shop clerk is, you guys are too young to die. He lets them leave. They agree on that much. But if you're Wiles, that last quote is a little more sinister because if they're too young to die, the implication is, buddy, you and I are not too young to die. By the way, Hardy, this this employee that was let go, this clerk, was reached by Kindred, and he had a very interesting take. This was years later. He says, whatever you're writing, I hope it doesn't make it sound like, oh, poor Charlie, just a good old boy down on his luck. He basically told Kindred, we all have bad days. I've never threatened anyone with a gun. So I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. There may be parts of the story where you feel sympathetic to Harris, but probably going to have less sympathy if this guy waved a gun in your face, aren't you? Next, Harris looks at Armstrong, the pro. His knees are literally shaking. Harris says to him, you look like you're going to piss your pants. And he lets him go, too. And now it's just him and Wiles. Well, at least he thinks it's just him and Wiles. Turns out, there are two other people locked in the bathroom he doesn't know about. We'll get to them a little bit later. But in this back room right now, it's just down to the two of them. And you have to think if you're Wiles, maybe you've handled the situation too well. He doesn't look that scared. He's talking with him. Everybody else who's scared has been let go. But but Wiles is here uh, because he's kept his composure. What's your reward? Well, you're still a hostage. Congratulations. So in the meantime, Harris, according to his later interview with Kindred, is seeing commandos in black suits coming down from helicopters. He's seeing sharpshooters set up through the windows by the putting green. Keep in mind, he also says that he took a stack of guns from some Secret Service agents. That's a part of Kindred's story. This is not mentioned later by the White House or anyone else involved. There's no story in which there are any Secret Service agents who are hostages. So again, you almost have to question some of what Harris is saying here. So now it's just Wiles and Harris, of course. The two of them have a bit of a rapport, at least until the point when Harris asks Wiles, how did you come to be here? Who are you? And Wiles, in kind of a Hail Mary, says, well, I just talked my way in off the street. Still doesn't, Harris still doesn't know he's a Reagan guy. He doesn't want him to know. But Harris is no dope. He doesn't buy it. And he gets mad at this, so he shoves a gun in his face. Says a few things to him with that gun in his face. Says, you know they're going to kill us, right? Wiles, who, again, seems like an unbelievably cool customer for this kind of situation, tells him, Look, my wife is pregnant with my first kid. I don't plan on dying here today. He says the gun looks as big as like a glass in his face. And next, Harris asks him a strange question. He's still got the gun up. He says, have you had a drink of liquor today? Wiles says, yes, I have, if you count last night after midnight. And this placates Harris a little bit because he's a drinking man and he likes that Wiles is too. And most of all, it seems like he wants to find some liquor. And he says, let's find some booze. So... They ransack the office looking for something. There's nothing there. At that point, there's a knock at the door. This is the deputy named Mitch. You might remember him. He's the one Harris had spoke to earlier when he was driving, who told him the president was at Augusta National. And Mitch is showing up to try to talk him down a little bit. They sent him in. But comes right after they can't find booze. Harris is already irritated. And this sends him into a rage. And at that point, he actually shoots out the window of the pro shop. Says to them, you sons of bitches, it wasn't loaded, but it is now. So here's an interesting divergence again between several different versions. Because Harris 
talking to Kindred, claimed that the shot came later. After he had surrendered to Secret Service, he says he had hit so many people with a gun in bar fights that it was bent at the trigger guard, and a Secret Service agent was looking at it and said, well, this never would have fired. And Harris wanted to prove it would have fired, so he picked it back up and fired a shot through the window. Now, to believe that, you have to believe that he surrendered, and that instead of being immediately handcuffed you know, for threatening the president... Instead of that, they were just having this courteous conversation, him and the Secret Service agents, to the point that he has the opportunity to grab the gun back and actually shoot it. That does not pass my smell test, but your mileage may vary, I suppose. Seems like the story from Wiles, though, that he shot it much earlier in a fit of rage makes a lot more sense. Anyway, Fisher gets to Reagan on the course. Fisher's his aide. Reagan demands to be involved once he learns that there's hostages. And once he learns that one of them especially is his friend, Lanny Wiles. So eventually, the phone rings in the pro shop. Wiles is the one to pick it up, and he hears the words, Stand by for Rawhide. That is Reagan's Secret Service codename. Harris gets the phone eventually. Reagan says, It's me. I'm Ronald Reagan. I know you want to talk to me. Here I am. If you're hearing me, please talk to me. And at this point, we have another kind of foggy situation. Harris says later that he thought it was a trick. Basically, that it was a taped recording of some kind. According to Wiles, though, the connection was bad. There was a lot of static. And while in Kidred's version of the story, there are two calls, maybe maybe a couple more, there are at least five attempts to reach him, according to Wiles. But he can never hear him clearly. And because of that, he never responds. And this makes Harris go crazy. He screams out, you think the son of a bitch would have a phone that would work? And eventually he rips out the phone and throws it across the room. Well, there goes that. You're not talking to the president now. Wiles still believes today that Reagan would have been able to talk him down if they could only hear him. Instead, because of the static, it's an absolute mess. The situation has gone worse. Harris throws Wiles against the wall, starts shouting that they're going to kill us, but keeps repeating that he just wants to talk to Reagan. I think at this point it's probably wise to say just a word about memory especially memory in traumatic situations perhaps you could even say you know throw the influence of alcohol into that mix how that affects memory and then time too the way stories get distorted with the years not just by people who are there but by people who have heard things secondhand and inadvertently misremember what they hear they add their own details and so like a game of telephone almost it does get warped a little bit so at this point, you know, here we are 40 years later, you're doing your best to reconstruct it, but inevitably there are going to be differing accounts, sometimes wildly differing, as you've already seen. You're probably best off using your judgment and saying, okay, who's the most reliable? Who should we depend on the most for, you know, the details of the story? But understanding that probably everybody is going to get something wrong. Wiles says it's just him and Harris in there at that point. If you ask Harris later, he says... No, I disarmed so many Secret Service agents, and I've got a stockpile of weapons, and they're all in there too. And probably both of them think they're telling the truth. A good second example, Jim Armstrong, the pro. The story goes around when Kindred is reporting that he was the last hostage and he escaped, but that's not true. And Armstrong says it's not true. He says, I was actually not in there very long, which jives with Wiles' story that he was let go because he looked so scared. Anyway, you get the point. We are reconstructing as best we can here, but there are some flaws to that. Okay. 
Harris is getting madder and madder. Eventually, he gets so mad and he's in such a rant that he kicks in the bathroom door. Well, that's bad news for Louise Cook, the club secretary, and Dave Spencer, another of the pros, because they're both in that bathroom hiding. There was a window in there, but in a turn of bad luck, it had been painted shut and they couldn't get out, so they're stuck there. Cook apparently fainted when she saw Harris's gun. Wiles came in, he tried to help her, and it seems like she crawled out the door, like she escaped, and it's hard to say how exactly that happened, what, what was going on. There are a few details on that. It may be that Harris just let her go. She was the first woman in the situation. Hard to say what happened, but it, but she got out of there right away. So now there's three men. You got Harris, Wiles, and the pro Dave Spencer, the one who was in the bathroom. With nothing better to do, they put on the Tennessee-Georgia Tech football game. And suddenly a news report comes out about a hostage situation at Augusta National. That's when they saw on TV an image of Reagan speeding away in a car with about 10 Secret Service agents standing on the running boards of the car. They're holding Uzis. It looks very serious and very ominous. Even though when you analyze this in cold blood afterward, Reagan never seems like he was in real trouble. But if you're watching on TV, it certainly looks like he's in trouble. looks like something big is going on. That limo carrying him with all the agents goes to the Eisenhower cabin eventually. And in the moment, Reagan has the aplomb, equanimity, whatever you want to call it, to wave from the back seat, even amid all the stress, which is kind of classic Reagan. Now, according to Wiles, Spencer, the pro who's with him, is dry mouth. He is just paralyzed with fear. And Wiles is trying to look out for him. He says, we need some liquor. To Harris, why don't you send this guy out to go get some? Harris is very much into that idea. He wants nothing more than liquor. A common theme here is that the man just wants a drink more than anything. And Spencer, when they're talking about the booze in a soft voice, says, Can I get a glass of white wine? And Wiles kicks him under the table. You know, what are you doing asking this guy for white wine? Are you nuts? You have any idea who you're talking to? But it seems like it's going to work. It seems like Wiles' plan to get Spencer out of there might, you know, reap some dividends here. But at the last minute, Harris says, no. Wiles is my friend. He already thinks Wiles is his friend. He trusts him more to come back. This other guy, Spencer, look at him. Look how scared he is. He's just going to run. So, Wiles, you go get the booze. So, Wiles opens the door. He sees more guns than he's ever seen in his life pointed at him. Harris is right behind him. He sees all the guns, too, and he says to them, do I have to kill this boy right now? And Wiles here probably does the smartest thing he can. He turns around and says, look, do you want to drink or not? Harris does want to drink, so he pushes him out the door. Now, if you know anything about a hostage situation, there is no way Wiles was ever coming back. It's not going to happen. In fact, he says he wants to, and he even offered to. They told him no. So instead, he drew up a map of where Spencer was in the pro shop. Plans are made for a sharpshooter to take out Harris. Harris himself is getting increasingly panicked. He demands to talk to Wiles because he really does have a rapport with him. But again, they wouldn't let Wiles go back. And for obvious reasons, they wouldn't give Harris any alcohol either. They said, you can have some food. There's no way we're giving you any booze. Now, this is kind of a dark period in the story in the sense that we're not sure exactly what's going on anymore. Spencer will not talk about this, period. Never again. He didn't talk to Shupak. He didn't talk to Dave Kindred. 
But in an authorized history of Augusta National, there is a report that Spencer had a gun held to his head and that Harris threatened to shoot his fingers off one at a time if he didn't get to talk to Reagan. Harris later said that was a lie. Spencer won't say anything and Wiley is outside now. So we don't exactly know. But we do know they send in food. Spencer opens the door to fetch it. Harris is momentarily distracted and Spencer scurries out. He escapes. So now, of course, Harris is just a guy by himself in a pro shop. This is a relief to everyone involved. The only person who can die at this point is the one who started this whole mess. His leverage is absolutely gone, but he does stay there, hold up for a little while. He doesn't want to go yet. Eventually, they bring in his wife. They bring in his mother, who is described as a white-haired woman in press accounts. And finally, two hours after this whole thing started, Charlie Harris surrenders. The aftermath is that Harris hyperventilated that night in jail. He was sent to the hospital, but it was just panic, apparently. The judge eventually decided he was fit to stand trial. This is not an insane person. But interestingly, he was never charged with a federal crime. News accounts of the time, you read about it, looked like prosecutors wanted to, looks like they were planning to. Eventually, he was dropped. Finally, he pleaded guilty to kidnapping, false imprisonment, criminal damage to property. He got 10 years. Told Kindred he served five. Shupak has him getting parole after three and a half years. Seems to be the truth. What we know for sure is that in prison, he found God. And that probably had something to do with his early probation. He started reading the Bible. And when he got out, his life actually started going pretty well. He reunited with his wife and four kids, was active in his church. When Kindred visited him in 2000, he had a swimming pool for his grandkids. He worked at a chemical plant near Augusta. He had totally quit drinking. The Secret Service monitored him for four years after he got out. Pretty quickly realized it was no longer necessary. And Harris is living just a sort of normal life. He hunts, he fishes. He still had his blue pickup truck when Kindred saw him. That 74 Dodge, the one that broke down the gate, it still had the dent from where he plowed through. And by the way, if you had a thought in your mind, hey, I want to do that too. I want to plow through an Augusta gate. Can't do it. There are now giant bollards at those gates. You cannot recreate what Charlie Harris did. As for Lanny Wiles, he didn't get to play his round at Augusta. And Shupak tells this great story that he's there at the pro shop years later, and the guard tells him, you can't go in there without a pass. And Wiles says, I almost died in that building. The guard let him in. But he never did get to play. And even though he tried, you know, this was an influential guy. In his mind, you have to think he said, come on, I was held hostage for Ronald Reagan in your pro shop. At least let me go play the course one time. He asked members. He asked friends of members to host him. Just hasn't happened still to this day. Kind of remarkable, isn't it? You think maybe this guy, if anybody, deserves a round there. Get him in on a Tuesday afternoon. But not at Augusta, I guess. You may be wondering here at the end, the thing I was wondering at the start, which is, why haven't I heard this story? Or if you have heard it, you may be wondering, why wasn't it a bigger story? Well, that night, as Lanny Wiles is winding down, trying to make sense of his day, get a drink, calm down a little bit, he gets a page from Fisher, back when pagers were a thing, and it says, turn on your TV. That night, which was Sunday morning in Lebanon, a suicide bomber named Ishmael Askari, belonging apparently to a group called Islamic Jihad, in a strange echo of what Harris had done earlier, drove a truck through a barrier 
through a guard shack into the barracks of the 1st Battalion of the 8th Marines in Beirut. His truck was armed with explosives, which were the equivalent of about 21,000 pounds of TNT. The bomb went off, and it killed 241 American servicemen. Ten minutes later, another attack happened in West Beirut that killed 58 French paratroopers. This was the highest single-day death toll for the Marines since Iwo Jima, for the French their worst military loss of life since the Algerian War. And that's the kind of thing that's going to push the Charlie Harris story right out of the headlines, isn't it? And immediately. I mean, we're talking the next day, this guy who had kidnapped seven people and threatened the president of the United States wasn't even a front-page story. And that has to have lingering effects years later, because if not for Beirut, you think maybe this is the biggest story for a week or more. Now it's back-page stuff. Spoke with Shupak on the phone about his story, and he made the funny point that Oftentimes, as writers, people come to you and they say, boy, do I have a story for you. And if you've been doing this long enough, maybe inwardly you kind of roll your eyes, but you still know enough to listen because who knows, sometimes there is something pretty good. And this happened to him where an acquaintance said to him, oh, you got to talk to Lanny Wiley. What a great story he has. So he said, okay, okay, what's the story? And of course, he heard all the details and he goes, what? How did I not know this? Well, Beirut is why. Ronald Reagan does not stay for his second round. The Beirut attack sees to that. He leaves Augusta. Charlie Harris goes to jail for three and a half years, comes out, lives what seems to be a pretty good life, dies at age 68 of a heart attack. His obituary doesn't even mention Ronald Reagan. And a few years before his death, when Dave Kindred visited him, I loved the end of his story because Kindred had one last question for him. He said, you ever been back to Augusta National? And Harris said, well, they asked me not to, which makes sense. They don't want to see this guy again, do they? But he couldn't resist saying to Kindred, you got a ticket? Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. We had two songs for our music today, Night on the Docks by Kevin McLeod and The Appalachian Trail by Hunter Quinn. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts. And we've got two others for you to check out too. First, Golf Digest weekly podcast, The Loop, is always a great listen. And second, a brand new podcast on golf instruction with Luke Kurdanin. That one is called Golf IQ. Both of them are out now. You can subscribe to both. Thank you very much for listening and have a great day.